The message this morning I've entitled Living in the New Covenant as the Living Water. My core scriptures are going to come from John chapter 7. And uh, in the scriptures, we, um, we're going to be reading it soon. Let's, let's actually bring it up so we can read it. And then uh, um, I'd like to just open with that as the scripture. <clears throat> it's found in John chapter 7. It's verses 37 and 38. This is the word of the Lord. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is, he said, about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Wow. What a scripture. I want to create a little bit of a context of why this was shared and when it was shared. So John chapter 7 starts where uh, John describes that the disciples were wanting to go to the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Booths, um, which happens once a year. It's t- it takes seven days. It happens in Jerusalem. And it's amazing how the openness of, of the Gospel of John. John declares that the disciples were pushing Jesus to go to go and declare himself, stop doing all these amazing things in the backward areas of, 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 of Israel. Go with us to the, to the Feast of, of, of Tabernacles and then declare yourself on the stage. Do what you could do, what you're doing there. Let's go with us. This is going to be, everybody's going to be there. And you see the conflict that's happening. And Jesus says, I'm not going with you. So you sense the conflict. You sense them saying, okay, well, we're going. And, um, and they leave and they go. And then we hear later in the same chapter that then Jesus secretly or secretly or unannounced goes to the feast. And John chapter 7 starts where, he, where he's then, people are aware that he's at the feast. Um, and then, of course, I'm focusing on the specific section, the last day of the feast. It's the seventh day of the feast. Jesus stands up. And in the Hebrew it says, it doesn't say he cries out, he shouts out loud. And he makes this incredible statement. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is an incredible picture. And what I'm going to try and do now is I'm going to try and explain to you and use this, this specific scripture to show you what it meant to the people of that time and what it means to us today. You're wondering, so can, thinking about the new covenant. Um, you see, for all the people that heard that scripture or that word that Jesus spoke, shouting out in the middle of the, of the, of the feast, at the end of the feast, that they knew their Bibles. And their Bibles in, their, in those days was our Old Testament. Our Old Testament is just arranged a little bit differently. They called their Bible the Tanakh. The Tanakh consists of three sections. First section is called the teaching section. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Then they have the second section, which is called the Nevev, which is the prophetic part. So we've arranged a little bit differently. And all the prophets are in that section. And then they've got the, the writings, which is the last section, which is called the Ketviv, which is all the other books, the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and the writings. So these people in the festival hear Jesus standing out and shouting this proclamation if anyone is thirsty can you imagine that 
Let him come to me and drink. In the middle of this incredible festival, he echoes these words out. And as people of that time, they would have known their Tanakh. So they would be hearing the echo coming back from their word in their hearts. The prophetic words that they knew, that they, that they memorized from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, from Zechariah, and from Malachi. The prophets declared the words that Jesus was speaking, and they would have heard a version or a, or a veiled version coming back to them. And the exciting thing is that it would have stirred them because they were thirsty. They were generations and generations of people waiting in anticipation for the prophetic word that was shared with them to come alive. And yes, this man declaring these words prophetically, saying that if you believe in me, those prophetic words that were shared are going to be true. Absolutely radical. So what I thought of doing is I can't go through all the prophets, so I'll pick two of them. And I'm going to really just take us and show you the echo that they would have experienced. And I'm going to show you how it echoes into our hearts. And it's all about understanding what we are living in, in this new covenant. And the first one I'm going to be picking to read is actually with the first few words that Jesus says. And they would have heard it and known that was Isaiah. If you know the book of Isaiah, if you've ever read parts of Isaiah, we love to sing parts of it, we preach on parts of it. But Isaiah 40 to 55 is one beautiful poem. It's this beautiful prose written by Isaiah. And in that time, like the Muslim people do today, they know every word. They can recite it without seeing it. People in that time knew the, knew the words. And they knew as Jesus cried out, is anyone thirsty? They would have heard, come everyone who is thirsty. Come to the waters. If you look at um, Isaiah 55 verse 1. The prophet Isaiah was making a proclamation to the world. Um, and he was saying to them, he was appealing to the thirsty. And it was beyond the walls of the people that they understood. It was beyond the religious people. It was beyond the, the Israel people. It was, it was aimed at anyone. Is anyone thirsty? Everyone who is thirsty. The verse actually reads, Come everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money... Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In our terms, prophetically, we're saying, if anyone is thirsty, it's not going to cost you anything. And then, of course, what he goes on to say, just two verses later, is what they would have known that they were hoping for. Verses, verses two, um, um, verses three, actually, verses three, well, I can just read them all. Verses three says, Incline your ear to come, hear what your soul may live, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, steadfast, sure, the love, uh, the love for David. What he's saying in our terms is, come and, come and hear if you're thirsty, because I am going to, this God's going to make a new covenant. Like the covenant, a renewed covenant, the covenant that I made with David, so that your soul may live. So as Jesus was declaring, if anyone is thirsty, they would have heard the echo coming back out of their Tanakh. 
he's speaking the prophetic words which God said would come to pass, that we've been longing for for generations and generations. It is just something so amazing when you think of what it means for them to have understood that there's something that God is declaring. And for us here, the Lord is declaring that as well. All of us who are thirsty, believe in me. And he goes on to say, what would happen to us? But you must understand, the people, as I said at that time, they would be defined as people from the second temple period. Now, just to give you some context, people in the first temple and in the second temple used to atone for their sins by bringing sacrifices to the temple. And they would atone for their sins by bringing a shedding of blood of an innocent animal. And once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and perform, similarly to the Passover, the sprinkling um, uh, and in the different corners of, of, of the Holy of Holies. It would be a, a very, personally, for a, for a high priest, must have been one of the most scariest things that they could do because they were in the presence of God. They would tie a rope around their leg um, so that if, in the presence of God, he had not followed all the proper uh, laws and, and, and that are defined in Leviticus of what it means to purify yourself, all the bathing that took place, all the purification that took place for him to enter into the Holy of Holies, to do and present this offering to God. If he was not cleansed or not, not worthy, he would be struck dead. That was the reality of what the temple represented. And that's the first temple that, 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 that was when the presence of God was there. The second temple period, the temple is destroyed. I'll get into that a little later. But they were living in this reality, in a temple that was rebuilt, following the same pro procedure, the same process of atoning for sins through coming to the temple and, and, and sacrificing burnt offerings for their sins. It's with this reality that they knew in their hearts that there was something that separated them because the temple where God's presence resided was destroyed. And yes, they were at a new temple that was built, but they know that they were living in political and spiritual exile. The Babylonians had destroyed the temple. And that was just the first of things that had happened to them. They would have also known that God had declared this in Deuteronomy. He'd said to them there would be the blessing and the curse. And if you can put that scripture up in Deuteronomy 30. He made this incredible proclamation. People of that time would memorize the scripture, knowing that there's this promise to come. But they were prophetically living in the part of the promise of the curse. Because they were scattered across the nations. They had been, they, their sins had caught up with them. They had, they had worshipped idols. And the Lord had, had declared that he would remove his presence from them, from Jerusalem and from them, and from the nation. And they would be scattered all over the world. But he goes on to say in Deuteronomy um, that after the curse, after the exile, there would be this coming together. It's beautifully written. Um, in, in, in Deuteronomy 30 verses 1, I'd like to just read it. This is the first part where he says, And when all these things have come, up, come up, upon, upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you, that's where they're at, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I've commanded you to, today, with all your heart and with all your soul, and here it comes. Then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. 
and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. For your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will take you. These people lived knowing that the blessing was coming after the curse, but they were living in this reality because they had worshipped idols. They had their sins continually before them. But Isaiah, the prophet, declared that if you're thirsty, God is going to do new things. He's going to create the covenant that he had with David when, when, we, when, when, they were, when they were one. So those people that were hearing this in the festival, Jesus echoing these words, if anyone is thirsty, and them hearing it, echoing back to it, come everyone who is thirsty. Here's the challenge, friends, and this is what Jesus does all the time with us as we allow the word to minister to us. It challenges us like it challenges them. Because he's saying, if you're thirsty and you want this to be rid of, you must believe in me. What is he saying? How can he make such a declaration? We're still in exile. We're still under the rule of the Romans. How can this be true? All these thoughts that have gone through their minds as Jesus declares that, and it echoes back to their hearts from the word that they know. Very radical if one just thinks about it. But if you go back to the text in John chapter 7, there's more. Those were the first three words, the first three words that were shared, the first few words that were shared. The Lord goes on and says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jeremiah speaks into it. Zechariah and Malachi also speak into it. But Ezekiel, friends, Ezekiel, he rocks. He has an ability to share a prophetic word which we can cling on to in times of need when you want to understand what it means to be living in this amazing covenant that the Lord has given to us, this is the prophet that just does it for me. And so Ezekiel says this. He says this, and it's so, so amazing. He basically says that there's this new covenant of the door that's coming where you would be cleansed from your sins. And not only will you be cleansed from your sins, imagine this. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, will be in you. For the people of that time, you've got to understand, this does not something that they were used to. They were used to the Spirit of God being in the presence, in the temple. And they were used to that the Spirit of God was, was placed on specific people, like David, like Samson that we heard from Billy last week, the, the prophets. But that the Spirit of God would be in each of us. That's what Ezekiel prophesied to everybody. I've got to read it. It's from Ezekiel chapter 36. And I just need a swig. From verse 24 to verse 27. And just hear this wonderful proclamation. And hear how you hear the Deuteronomy promise also coming through. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Deuteronomy. And here we have it. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And then he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Wow. Remember the echo. Is anyone thirsty? Whoever believes in me. There's water. There's water coming. I'm going to cleanse you. He doesn't leave it there. Ezekiel goes on just a few verses later uh, and 35 and says, not only will I do that in you, but you are going to become like the Garden of Eden. And there's going to be from desolation all these oases. This is beautiful imagery that, that he uses. Um, that the, the toxic waters will become fresh and living. But that's what you will do. So that's Ezekiel 30, um, 36, um, verses 35. Then fruitful farms will like the Garden of Eden. Desolated wastelands will become uh, the Garden of Eden as the Lord puts His Spirit within them. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So there's this promise that they hear Jesus is sharing. Now, you must understand that for them to hear this, as I said, this declaration that they'll be free of this burden that they're under, the curse that they're under, and that all their sins, all the idol worship will be cleansed and washed clean. The Bible uses water very, very interestingly. Sometimes it's used for, 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 for drinking. It's, it's kind of going to give you life, but the water is also used as a symbol to give purification and for judgment. And that's what Ezekiel does right here. Because I want to just reiterate this again. For the people of that time, living in the second temple, they've been facing incredible realities of being in this, in this desolate exile environment. Because you need to understand, the first temple, I'm going to throw a little bit of facts to everybody. Just trust me with this one. The first temple was built and, and was physically there for 380 years. Um, I've got a little, little, little schematic that I put together for myself so that I won't get the facts wrong. Um, from 966 BC to 586 BC, 380 years. But right near the end, after the Lord had said and prophetically warned and warned, His presence had left the temple. And we know that in 586 BC, the Babylonians wipe the complete temple. Not a stone is standing. And there's exile um, with, with, with all those people that were, with, were in Jerusalem. And, of course, what we know what happens then, there's this period where it's absolutely desolate. But then we read in 515 B.C. that the temple is restored. Now, the Babylonians have been defeated. Um, what you then have is the Persians that are ruling. The Persians declare that they can take all the, uh, the, 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 the instruments from, from Babylon and they can rebuild the temple. That temple is built, <coughs> importantly. Remember, the presence of God is no longer... Was no, was no longer in that the, the regional temple. It was completely destroyed. But before that, God's presence had left it. Now they build the temple again. And that temple actually lasts for a whole 422 years, which is quite a long time. But in that time, if ever we were wondering, and of course you have religious people and zealot people that say, but the presence of God is back. They still perform all the rituals. The high priest goes in once a, once a year. They're still fearful of going into the presence of the Lord. But there's two specific events that occurred in that period. 196 BC, when the, <coughs> the Syrians have conquered the world at that stage, and they declare that the Jewish 
religion is illicit. And so the king of Syria at that stage goes into the Holy of Holies and he sacrifices to idols and, he's, and he also does sacrifice that people sacrifice to him as a god. Now you can imagine for a Jewish believer, built this temple, it's been around from 515 BC, it's now 196 BC, 198 BC, and someone that is completely a heathen is just walked into the Holy of Holies. He should have been completely wiped off the planet or just completely died in the presence of God. God's presence wasn't there. So yes, they had the building, but the building didn't represent what they had before. <clears throat> and I wrote it like this, and I'd like to just kind of, the first temple was where heaven and earth, it was the heaven and earth place, a sacred spot where heaven and earth were joined together. They knew that. There was a protection on Jerusalem. There was a protection on the people. But it's, a, it's an incredible thing as you read the, the kings and you see how each king just started idol worship. There's only two that stand out and continually just fall back and eventually they break the covenant with the Lord. And he says enough. He removes his presence and there's no protection on Jerusalem. The second event that took place, and this is quite something to, if you want to read it up in in Josephus is a historian that, that writes about this. This is in 63 BC. Now the Romans are in ruling over the Israel, Israelis. And he is the general called General, he was, Pompey was a, it was a general, there's of course a town named after him. And he had conquered the whole of Palestine. He got to Jerusalem, you might not know this, but 12,000 people tried to defend the temple. And he murders them all. And he enters, as is recorded in the historian records from Josephus, he enters the Holy of Holies with his lieutenants. Imagine being a Jewish person, having this temple that's been around for 400 odd years, thinking that the presence of God is in there. Here comes this heathen with blood on his hands, walks into the Holy of Holies. And it's written that he says he was surprised that there was no idol in the Holy of Holies of their God. There was 2,000 gold coins, and a few other things. He left the temple and demanded the next day that they continue with the rituals. But the reality for the Jewish people was, we have a temple, but God's presence not with us. We're still living under the curse. Why do I say this to you? This is the reality of the people that were then living in that time. Of course, one other disaster that happens in that period, when the Romans became emperors or over, the, over that area, the general then declared a new family to be the heirs and the new, new kingly, kingly group, which was Herod and, and uh, King Herod. wasn't what was planned. It was put there by the Romans. And of course, Herod decides to demolish the temple and create a new temple. And it's also recorded in, in, in Josephus that it was the greatest temple ever built. But now remember, he's just got to be a little bit of a brain to think about this. The whole building was destroyed. There was no presence of God in it. This beautiful building was created. The strange thing is, the third temple, in a way, was built, uh, started being building at 20 BC, 20 years before Christ was born. It actually was only completed in 63 AD. So that's, um, what, 83 years. So, but they were already ministering in the temple before Jesus was born and also while he was uh, alive. The temple was standing in that sense, but it wasn't completely finished. Something like what's happening in Barcelona. So the main thing is that what I'm trying to say here is that these temples represented something for the people. But Ezekiel was saying, 
And this is what makes it so important. And what they were hearing Jesus proclaiming at the end of the feast. Ezekiel says that he's going to be a new covenant as well. He says in Ezekiel uh, 37 verses 26. Maybe if you got that there. I will make a new covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and, the multitude, and multiply them. And they will set my sanctuary in the midst of forever. Midst, in, the midst, in their midst forever, forevermore. Ezekiel makes this proclamation. Now remember that they're hearing the echo from them being thirsty. And they're hearing Jesus declare. And this is where it comes. In the next part that Ezekiel actually prophesies. He says... One thing is that the temple will be restored. And secondly, that water will flow from the temple. Living water will flow from the temple. And that's found, firstly, that the temple will be restored as in Ezekiel 43. And uh, he says there, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into that inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple prophetic promise that they know was coming there's this new covenant happening and then the next thing that he says in this wonderful prophetic statement in 47 verse 1 he says then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold the water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east the water was flowing down from below the southeast of the threshold of the temple south of the altar they knew that the Lord had promised that this water, this holiness, would be flowing out of the temple. Now let's just bring it back to what, what they've been hearing. Jesus is declaring that if you believe in me, we will be the temple because out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. I am... I find it so amazing that not only does it, does it say that at a specific time, but it's at the Feast of Booths where the whole of Israel were gathered together to celebrate that while they were in ancient times in the desolate deserts, they were given water out of a rock. I'll give you an idea of the reality of that for a nation. They say there was, you know, it's recorded 650,000 650, men you can imagine almost two million people daily needing water in the middle of the desert. Kind of my brain goes into that kind of thinking, how much water is needed? And they, they received it from God. And that's why they celebrated this wonderful Feast of the Booths. And it's at this feast that Jesus declares, is anyone thirsty? It's at this feast where they will hear the echo that the temple will, will, will be reunited, that the temple will flow like water. It's in this reality that they are now just hearing, being challenged by what Jesus is saying. Because he not only says that, he says, believe in me, as the scripture says, and this will happen. I have this strange little thing that I do, and maybe if you've journeyed with us at Live for a while, you might have known. I have this little bucket list. It's kind of a, a heavenly bucket list. This is one of those heavenly bucket lists for me. So I, I'm, I know this sounds a bit funny, but this is just the way I, I'm kind of wired. I really hope that one day I'll be able to meet a specific person 
who was there at that specific feast of, of the booths, that heard about Jesus declaring this, not as a Christian, not as a believer, but what makes that person special? Because if I'm going to see them in heaven, they become one of those living water temples. And I'm just trusting, and I mean, I threw that in when I was just preparing, and, I'm, and maybe the Lord is saying, Ken, you're, you're stretching it. But I'm really hoping that maybe one of those are the 500 witnesses that saw Jesus as the resurrected Lord and Savior. Because I know that they experienced what it meant to be living water, that afterwards when the Holy Spirit was poured out, they were there. They saw the fire of the Lord just spreading as the people were sharing the gospel. And their living water became oases and as the gospel spread. <clears throat> but I'd love to know what they thought. I wrote it down like this. I said, the picture that was shared with those people back then from the prophets was veiled in part. Um, but this glorious reality was revealed to us through Jesus. This picture of the new covenant. The place where the Lord will meet his people and meet them with grace and power. Despite our uncleansiness. This is the incredible picture that we have in the new covenant. <clears throat> the Lord declares to all of us, if anyone is thirsty, anyone who accepts this invitation, that person becomes the living embodiment of the temple of God. This is such an amazing, amazing truth for us to own when we, when we share communion. But in this John chapter 7, it's just incredible. This, this, this statement is made in John chapter 7, and it just kind of summarizes waves of ancient prophecy in these two statements. And one kind of reads it and then carries on. And, 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 but it is just so wonderful that Jesus points us, firstly, to what he did on the cross and how he sacrificed himself for us. And what he did for his love for us as he was glorified then. But not only that, he points it towards us that we need to be filled with this living water. And then as Jesus always does, he doesn't just do that. He does something more. He lets us understand that it's not about just receiving this living water. It's about being the living water, as you read in that prophetic statement, that we can become the oasis. We can become the, the fruit for the people around us. There's, a, there's an action involved here. I've actually, you know, the way, the way it clearly said there that as it's a, it's, it's a moving thing. It's, um, I want to just maybe just say that properly because I've actually written it down. Out of your hearts will, will flow rivers. It's not that you flow into a dam. We're not called to be a dam. I love the way God does that. That just when you think, oh, this is so amazing, you realize he's calling you to something. He's calling you to step out in faith because it's something about not just cherishing up this beautiful stuff that God is doing. He's calling us to, to flow like rivers of living water so that we could be the oases that the temple represented. It's beautifully also portrayed in Zechariah and, um, and, and Malachi as well. The, the joy that one sees when you realize what God is telling us, and this is the mission, friends, that the church has always had. It's the mission that we should have. And, and, and you should know, well, the question is, how do we do this? And I would say, and I was trying to put my head around how I can do this in, in the remaining time that's left to me. And the truth is, every time we come together in this place to preach, 
every time we sit together in small groups where we have lady studies, we have small groups, we're, we're allowing Jesus' word to minister to us. And it has got to call us into an action of what does it mean for us? You're hearing the doing as you're part of a, of a living fellowship. And I thought, okay, how do I end this? And how do I, I and, and I found that I was really quite excited about this. Um, you see, we're in this phase between the, the risen Jesus and the 40 days. And I thought, wow, okay, Lord, that's amazing. Maybe I should look at a verse that Jesus says once he was resurrected. So, of course, from John 7, I'm going to jump to John 20 in closing. There's an amazing, amazing, amazing word that Jesus says, which kind of dovetails so beautifully, absolutely beautifully, with what he declared in John chapter 7. This is when the disciples are all in the upper room. They're still scared. And then Jesus appears to them. It's found in John chapter 7 and verse 21. Hear what the Lord says. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Friends, this specific passage where Jesus makes this command, this charge to the disciples, very, very, very powerful thing. It's the, it's the as so, um, it's known, it's famous for what, what it means. Because you kinda, I'm going to try and put it in these terms. It's as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. How does it work? It's as we apply all that Jesus shares with us in this amazing word, as we apply it in our lives, as we wrestle with it in the church, as we declare it to the people around us. So we must respond in the moments that the Holy Spirit empowers us to be Jesus. What does that mean for you and me? It means it's not in your own strength. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit that you can have meditated and, 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 and wrestled with what God is telling you to do. Owned it in your heart. But then in those moments that you're faced with, so that when you're faced with those moments where there's someone that needs to be loved, that really is hard to love. Where, where Jesus shows you in the way he suffered that ah, I might have to suffer in this one, Lord. Where Jesus shows you what it means to really humble yourself in his word. Father, help me. I, I know I need to humble myself, although I'd like to just do something else. And may I even say this. When you see the unjustness of this world, you'd have the courage to rebuke that like Jesus would. That's what it, that's what it means to be living water to people because that's what changes hearts. As the Holy Spirit within you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. People will see Jesus and they'll respond to it. And that is why whenever we meet and have communion, it is such a blessing for us to say this and remember this. You know this passage, Matthew 26. And you know this when the Lord specifically says this to us. Would you put that up, Alex? Yeah, 26 verses 27 to 28. And you know this, but just hear this from me. And as he took the cup and he'd given thanks, listen to what Jesus is telling all of us here. He's saying to you, 
drink of it. All of you. And why are you drinking that? For this is the blood of the covenant. This is what we live for. And I just felt when I read this again and again, and I felt, oh, Lord, you're calling me and all of us to drink. All of us who are thirsty. This is what makes life so worth it. Because we know who we are. May we as a congregation live in that reality. It's not about just enjoying the moment. It's about understanding who we are as the temples of the Holy Spirit. And when you know that, you're going to be happy. You're going to rejoice. And you can really be through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only through the Spirit. And what I love about Jesus is, in closing, he doesn't leave them there. Going back to uh, the John passage in my closing, he doesn't just give them the charge. What does Jesus do? In the second verse, he says, he breathed on them, and they received the, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Can you see the beautiful dovetail of what Ezekiel was saying? And I will fill them with my spirit. I didn't even get to the fact where Ezekiel prophesies over the bones and they became alive. We need the Holy Spirit to do this. So Jesus just doesn't charge them, but he equips them with the Holy Spirit. And that's the same for each of us. Friends, I want to encourage you today as you leave this place. You are living in the new covenant. You are the living water. But I want to declare to all of us, and I want, to, I want to speak that word over each of us this morning. If any of us are thirsty, let's come to the Lord. Let's believe in Him.